our collective consciousness has uh, has a vision for a world that is inclusive and empowered. And I'm offering the idea that there's at least two breaths beyond that. Welcome to the 40th episode of the Supergivers podcast on what is also, as I record this, the eve of 2020. I'm your host and producer, Jesse Johnson, equine leadership facilitator and student of all things leadership. At the midway point of my third season of this show, I wanted to thank all of you for listening, subscribing, and telling others about it. I love that I get to offer this at zero fee for listeners. And if you've benefited from the show and would like to support its continuation, you can help me out with one of three simple actions. You can write a five-star review on iTunes. You can tell a friend about the show or, and you can subscribe and listen to another episode on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, or TuneIn. At the risk of sounding dramatic, and it really doesn't feel dramatic for me to say this, I know for many of us, 2020 feels like a critical year for the future of humanity, which is why I'm so humbled, grateful, and simply excited to share with you my conversation with Dr. Leticia Nieto. Dr. Nieto is, on the surface, a graduate-level instructor at St. Martin's in the School of Psychology, and her work on liberating us all from the grips of oppression is at the heart of her many gifts to the world. If you listen to this episode, you may leave with the beginnings of a template for understanding how you can develop skills to move beyond the stuckness that encumbers our social systems today. I'd love to say more, and I'm going to leave the rest of it there for Leticia to pick up. This is the Supergivers Podcast. Dr. Leticia Nieto, couple and family therapist, anti-oppression work, playback theater facilitator. Mm -hmm. Um, I would love to know, by way of introduction, if you can describe what's at the heart of your work and your mission in the world. Okay. So my approach has been informed by several things. Um, One of them is... Um, a very strong intuition from early life about improvisation and development. And so what that's connected to is this idea that if conditions are right, the best response, the most appropriate or adequate note or phrase or action will arise and become available to a person in a situation. And that, um, the range of tools available to someone through that spontaneity will increase as development widens. And so it's kind of a conversation between conditions in any given moment that permit optimal vitality and responsiveness and presence. And then on the other hand, conditions that and they're often the same, that support the evolutionary, natural evolutionary rhythm um, that will widen and deepen um, the number of those available responses, thereby making it ever more wonderful, just like a musician with a great repertoire and uh, wide capacity can improvise much more freely and much more... um, attunedly to the to the community or the, the audience that they're with. Similarly, I think counselors, um, activists, trainers, presenters, speakers, facilitators of all kinds um, are in that work. We're, we're uh, 
we're learning our own warm-up, we're learning our own conditions, and then become increasingly more effective at cultivating and calling those up so that we can show up. And then we're simultaneously inviting that consciousness in others through, we could call it corrective experience if we want, or just um, attuned experience that uh, gives our clients or our students um, an opportunity to experience themselves in the fullness of their current moment. And then the feeling, the invitational um, breath into the next wider um, way of being. So that's kind of the essence of my work. Hmm. I love, yeah, I love that. And I can hear that if, if we distill that down into a universal truth, it sounds like the work we do internally can broaden the options we have in relationship. If I'm totally oversimplifying it. <laughs> no, no, that's, that's good. I mean, I, when I'm, I'm thinking about spontaneity and improvisation, um, really specifically, like, what is it? And that, you know, there's a whole realm of study called socionomy um, that looks at the question of what is spontaneity? And, and it's the, it's looking at the relationship between spontaneity and creativity. So mm -hmm. maybe this is a good moment to kind of give a frame that um, uh, Jacob Moreno, who was the originator of socionomy in the United States, most often, um, the word associated with his work is psychodrama, um, but it's a much broader thing than psychodrama, gave us this image. It's a circle, and um, it has, uh, the, the idea is you're going around the circle in a clockwise way, and then um, at each of the quadrants of the circle on the perimeter, there's a W for warm-up. You're warming up, you're warming up, you're warming up, and then as you come up to like 9 o'clock on the circle, there's an S for spontaneity when enough warm-up happens then spontaneity arises or becomes primed and they then there's an arrow that goes from that nine o'clock to the center of the clock and that's a big c for creativity mm. so there's mm -hmm. an opportunity there to um to create something to truly create something new and that can be well spontaneity is defined as a new response to an old thing to an old situation or um an adequate response to a new situation. So it has to do with ad adaptive or effective rather than necessarily, you know, um, elaborately creative, because that's not the point. It's, it's about meeting what arises. And so when that happens um, in, a, in a sustained way, uh, well enough, if you will, then there can be something truly new, transformation, change. <clears throat> So wanna, a new reality. I want to break down these elements a little further. And for people who may not be as familiar with the terms you're using, I wonder if you could contextualize how this relates to uh, your work in the world around anti-oppression and specifically human relationship in general. Okay. So if we think about warm-up, which is one of the core elements in socionomy, it's this idea that states states of consciousness, states of mind, including physical, spiritual, mental, um, states can be accessed when conditions permit it, and that we go from one state to another, like um, I'm, in a, I'm in a state of wakeness, and then I'm in a state of sleep, and the transition requires a kind of warm-up to sleep. 
I'm in a state of stillness, going to a state of motion, and there's a warm-up journey there. And this warm-up is pretty individualized. People have their own warm-up, and there's um, there, there are things to know and, and understand. Um, when I'm performing with the playback actors, some people's warm-up to performance is to, you know, do lots of exercises and make their face move around and their body, and they jump around, and some of them have to go be quiet, be by themselves. Um, so there's just a variety of things that we do to warm up to different situations. The way that it relates to anti-oppression is that, over oh, well, there's a bunch of ways, but um, the anti-oppression model that I work with has three lenses. One I call power, one I call status, and one I call rank. And there, it's in a concentric circle, so I'm all about the circles and the spirals. Hmm. The circle in the center is power, the next circle is rank, and the outermost is status. You can kind of, in one way, you can think about the perimeter being the least warmed up, and the core being the most warmed up. So status play, which is on the outer, kind of the the shell or the skin of the fruit, you know, the, the outer layer, mm-hmm. is all about our reactivity and the way we behave and the things we say and the fact that we're largely in, in engaged in um, thoughtless or not very conscious ways of interacting. Uh, and we either play high status or low status, according to theater theater theory. Um, the, the way we move interactions all the way from amoebas to whales and humans included in that, um, is that we interact by being above or below. And there's no such thing as a completely even, flat interaction, even over phone or email or text. There's We're always engaged in a dance of up and down. And in itself, it can be oppressive or it might not be. Um, but just for the moment, thinking about how we're reacting to one another in every moment. So that can be narrow and restrictive, or it can be wider. So the image that I have is the Pacific Northwest has a lot of caution um, built into our interactions. It's my experience since coming here, that there's a carefulness, a civility, a uh, a quietness and a caution. Um, I guess it sometimes is called freeze or cold or something, but it has that kind of feeling like it's not warmed up, right? Mm. People, it takes people a while to come around to interacting with each other with any risk at all, whether it be the risk of conveying, hey, you, I'm interested in you, or the risk of, hey, I have a challenge with you. Um, for example, the word confrontation is pretty much a negative word around here, but all it means is to face, to engage in a, in a face-to-face way. So um, so that's a little bit the, the work at that very superficial interaction level. As we go deeper into the the image of those three concentric circles, we get into rank, which is systemic oppression. All the ways we are socialized and conditioned to um, to operate in the world according to our socially assigned memberships. I use Pamela Hayes's addressing model, which includes age, disability, religion, ethnicity, social class, sexual orientation, indigenous background, national origin, and gender. Those nine elements is misspelling the word addressing because I'm too lazy to add the extra D that she put in (laughs) for mental disabilities. But really the word addressing is just a way to remember these nine categories in which we get classified. And um, the, the idea with this middle layer that I call rank because it's an assignment rather than an identity. It's something that is ascribed. Um, The idea with that rank layer is that 
we are socialized differently or differentially depending on our profile. So we are socialized um, into roles that I call agent roles where we carry privilege because of our ascribed membership. We have advantages that are unearned, et cetera, and benefits. And then uh, in the categories where we have an assignment that is marginalized, there we experience marginalization, exclusion, restriction, dehumanization, et cetera. Now, both of these assignments are dehumanizing and contribute to the ossification or, um, or restriction of role and patterning. And so they work against warm up. They make us more robotic instead of more human. Both roles are dehumanizing in that way. And then just to finish in the center is this idea of power, which is our true self, our core self, our most warmed up, most immediate, most responsive, most present, most informed, and also most joyful way of being. Um, which is in the core, and it's always there, but the degree to which it can transmit beyond the ossified robotic Borg-like layer of rank and out into our really reactive status play is sometimes very compromised. So warm-up has to do with accessing that power core through um, social analysis and other tools for unpacking and discerning how oppression operates and into some much more free and wide and uh, warmed up muscles for interaction that permit broad, broad range of, of, um, of connectivity through many roles. Beautiful. Thank you for that summary, that little, that little mini intro mm -hmm. to your class lecture. <laughs> <laughs> I love the overlay of this idea that we're we're sort of like we're warming up as individuals but also culturally aren't we to try to find a way in to spontaneity or to a to an expansive state uh where the just the choices we have in relationship are more attuned and and more effective is that like a, a fair summary yeah, that's right. And and I think my um, sort of my contribution is that these three layers that I'm calling power, rank and status require very different medicine or entrainment or practicing to achieve that result. Um, so we one of the problems that I'm observing um, is that we apply what I would call status level intervention for problems that actually are operating at the rank level and the um, the laws of like gravity and the rules of engagement vary significantly in each of those levels for example at the most superficial level of interaction every move we make can be assessed or tracked for its rightness correctness appropriateness fitness and um and the the dynamic of who's up and who's down can shift moment by moment depending on how people behave whether we're talking about um someone um behaving badly and in, in a um, demeaning way towards someone else or whether someone is taking a low status position for survival reasons or other, that dynamic is observably changing all the time. It's so uh, labile. It, it just wiggles around all over the place. And, and so we go to work really hard to try to figure out how do we behave and cause others to behave in the ways that we think are better, right? So how can we have people be kinder, um, nicer, warmer, 
more humane. Uh, and that is all good. And, you know, when I work with schools and kids, of course, we should have anti-bullying um, guidelines. Um, and of course, we should have practices around and agreements around how we talk with one another and what respect con- is about, etc. Though that can also be culturally contexted, but that's a separate conversation. Um, or maybe just a little later in the hour. Uh, mm. As we look at rank, though, rank uh, dynamics are operating mostly unconsciously and systemically. So we talk about the pervasive, systemic, interpenetrating, unconscious nature of oppression in all of the nine categories. And um, you can't apply interactional medicine to systemic oppression. For one thing, the arc is very different in time. Status plays moment by moment. Um, oppression is uh, can be measured more in like at least decades, if not centuries. It's going to take a while to make shifts that are systemic and social. So the rank layer is asking us not so much to make corrections in our behavior and always be, you know, perfectly anti-oppressive in every word we speak and in every action we take, which is awesome if you can do it. But what really is being asked, I think, of us in this moment is to develop a relationship to the conditions that privilege some and dehumanize others and to develop um, an organic and um, responsive relationship to the fact that a large part of that is below our consciousness. And so it's a I, cultural humility wraps around this quite a bit. Um, so the example that I want to give you is an example of a child that is um, a child with marginalization membership. You can picture any marginalization you want. Um, and they are in an environment where they are one of very few or even the only one in the category of marginalization. And everyone else in their classroom um, is a member of the dominant group in that category. And this child has had no prior problems um, um, developmentally or academically or behaviorally, but then suddenly they find themselves in this situation. And I'm thinking about, you know, someone, for example, in the ethnicity category, moving from a more diverse environment to a small town in Washington state where they are the only person of color. Suddenly this child behaves badly. They, uh, they commit an act of uh, aggression towards another child and immediately the bullying, um, anti- anti-bullying um, rules and guidelines come to bear and the child is instructed to, you know, we don't do that here, we don't hit, we don't shove, whatever it is. And so in the analysis of status play, it's very easy to simply create rules and guidelines and consequences for bad behavior or behavior that we don't think is acceptable. But um, when I've been invited to intervene on a situation like this, it is because the principal or the teachers or the parents um, have an observation about the fact that the behavior is in context and it has to be understood in a deeper way. So we can look at things like passive forms of oppression, um, where a person is invisibilized, disregarded, disconnected from. Um, So my my lab uh, experiment has to do with um, witnessing or or shadowing uh, someone who's had an experience, an adult or a child who's had who's having a challenging experience at work or at school, to see how they operate and how they are treated. And guess what? 
really often passive forms of oppression are in play. No one is calling anyone names. There is no specific hate um, speech or hate action occurring. However, many, many elements can be observed of what what these subtler forms can look like. For example, a person speaks, a person of marginalized membership speaks, and their comment is disregarded, ignored, maybe not even heard. Someone else makes the same point. Immediately, that person gets connecting comments. Um, A person uses a tool, a book, a chair, and no one else touches that for the rest of the time. They go out of their way to get a different tool in order to not touch that one. And they're not aware they're doing it. Or one of the ones that I've been really intrigued by is when kids are in the hall, um, they often have a lot of incidental physical contact and um, kids with marginalized memberships don't. Now, no one's avoiding them, but there is a very subtle way in which at micro levels that uh, you know Malcolm Gladwell has t- t- told us about, at very quick micro levels, there are messages being sent. Now, that's rank material. Warming up to making a difference about that looks very different than warming up to making a difference at the level of interaction. Um, If we want to create change at the rank level, it's going to take some skillfulness. So I've developed a series of five skills for members of marginalized groups and five skills for members of dominant groups um, so that we can kind of slow down and become a little bit more patient in recognition that each of these skill sets, as I said, five in each case, widen as we go along in our commitment to anti-oppression. And um, and we may be able to access an anti-oppressive skill in a particular moment, but because of socialization and conditioning, we may not be able to always access those skills. And so what does it mean to develop a relationship to these oppressive structures um, in recognition that they've got us by the throat or some other body part, and that there isn't going to be um, an automatic switch that changes us from being subject to oppression to not being subject to oppression. And here my pet peeve is this idea that as long as we define oppression as a problem to be solved, we're really reducing its size to something much smaller than what it really is. And then just to get to the core, whenever we access anti-oppressive skills, which are the last two on the on the agent model or the dominant uh, group model, and the last three in the target model or marginalized group model, then we're accessing power. That's who we're really supposed to be. But it's not guaranteed, and you can't just do it by will. So there's a whole lot of surrender in this framework. Um, most people kind of give up on it about, you know, a little ways into it because it's really an invitation to a lifelong um, commitment to accept all of the skills, including the oppressive skills, as part of a spiral. I think of a spiral like a tube. And if you want, or like a chocolate fountain, for some reason it's not a fountain, it has to be a chocolate fountain. <laughs> if the smallest, if the smallest yeah. bowl at the top of the fountain isn't full, then it can't spill out into the second, third, fourth, and then fifth, right? Mm. So as long as we're being really restrictive and reactive about the narrower, which in fact are more horrible skills, then we will have difficulty creating environments that are permissive enough to allow for the conditions of spontaneity and development where the skills can fill and then spill in directions we really want to see. Beautiful. And if just to go back a second, um, you said as long as we continue to 
to look at oppression as a problem to be solved, it really sort of minimizes what it is. What is the relationship to oppression that you'd like us to have? I'd like us to think of it as a set of conditions, socio-historical conditions that have a multiplicity of factors and facets, largely institutionalized and embedded and largely unconscious in terms of our interaction. Then we begin to have sort of a sense of the dimensions of the thing. If we want to imagine it as a problem, we've just gone back out into that status layer where we're imagining that oppression is bad behavior. And if we drop down into the systemic, then, I mean, it reduces us, right? Because as yeah. human beings, what, what can we do about the larger structures? And so what happens is I want to solve the problem that I can solve. So I will define it as a problem I can solve rather than I will accept this um, m- much more challenging dimensionality in which I am a small element of a large system, but a potent small element that, in fact, can transform the system by transforming myself and my relationships. Mm. It's more, it's a more integrated perspective in my mind. mind. Right. So even just to use the fleshes example out a little bit of the, of the school and the behavior you mentioned in your book that every child, regardless of other rank categories holds a target status for eight. Yeah. and I would call it target rank, just to keep clear that I'm target not. Rank. Yeah. yeah, so target rank and age. Mm-hmm. Every child and every human has experienced that. Every human. So even though I, as a 42-year-old white male who I would say I own um, an agent rank in every category at this point in my life, even I have gone through that phase where I've held a target rank for age. So, Right, so you've experienced that socialization. Yeah, that, yeah, that yeah. Target. Which actually, which actually feels kind of hopeful from a, you know, from a, from an agent standpoint that there could be potentially an avenue for empathy. <laughs> but um, well, it's good news and bad news because the um, the fact is, within a very short time, the socialization of supremacy um, can near erase the consciousness of targetship, the way that when we wake up from a dream and move our large muscles that. Uh, chemical wash kind of rinses away the dream. Uh, And so while we've all been children and while we've all had uh, that experience as children and adolescents, and we'll have it hopefully as, as elders, um, these, that's one of the things about oppression at the, at the, um, uh, at the outer level of status play, our learning experiences, our experiences, our memories can absolutely inform our behavior and our stance and our thinking. But at the rank level, it is much more mechanical. So, you know, I use the metaphor of the Borg from the um, from the Star Trek franchise that there's a kind of collective sleep programming, remote control quality to that socialization. We don't have a conscious relationship to age supremacy. We know about it, but we can't really see it, experience it very much. In moments, we can get, you know, little glimpses of it, especially when someone else brings it up. And it's wonderful to be available to those reports. But even still, we're getting very much the tip of the iceberg of how much we default to supremacy in each of these categories where we carry age and rank. So empathy, yes, but not necessarily at the rank level, only, unfortunately, at the um, status level. 
Yeah, thank you. And to my to my point, bringing it back to your example, I'm going to speak to parents, especially who have children, even if they're not in any other um, target rank positions, that treating a behavior on a status level, if we're missing the developmental context, which I guess could be sort of in that rank context, is that fair to say? Like if I'm if I'm working with my son and he's five and and I'm sort of over focused on the behavior that's happening or correcting, let's say, the behavior versus really holding space for the context of um, his his developmental situation. Like he's in this family with two adults and there's behavior that's actually related to the oppressive force of his developmental gap rather than some sort of what we might call misbehavior. Is that yes. Yeah. Yes. With one adjustment. Okay. The, the, um, the redirection of focus in order to take an anti-ageist stance is less about understanding the child's developmental moment and more about understanding the adult's developmental moment. Hmm. So for example, if we take it to ethnicity, Anti-racism is less about understanding people of color and why they behave the way they behave and what they're doing and and coming to reduce prejudice. And it is more about understanding the function of white supremacy in the white person. Got it. The focus is going to be consistently for skillfulness on the side of the agent or or beneficiary of oppression um, side is self analysis and self-reflection in the systemic way rather than uh the focus on the child got it or, yeah. or the target membership yeah yeah well, well, a, a moment ago i i was feeling a sense of uh warm-up and spontaneity if you're if you're open to playing for a second sure okay i i was thinking it would be cool to sort of do some present-centered sharing and breakdown about our conversation in the moment as an example for people listening, but also as a, as a way of sort of unpacking these concepts a little more. So what back when you were laying out the basic concepts of status, rank and power, I thought our conversation could be a real interesting fuel for that. Um, and maybe let me just give you this and then you can see if you, if it feels worthwhile or not. So I've been, <clears throat> I was noticing, for instance, when we started that with all the, with all the agent rank that I come in with, I was feeling really tense and, you know, just a sense of narrowness around wanting to be really appropriate with you and respecting you. And would that be an experience of sort of lowering my status? Attempting to, Yeah. I think so. There's like an, an impulse to, can I, is there something I can do to flatten the playing field so we can encounter? There's an impulse there, but it's kind of glitchy, right? At yeah. the beginning. Yeah. Well, I'd love to know if, if, if you've got any sense of this, if not, that's fine, of course. Um, how did you receive that? And, and how are you receiving me in this conversation in, in that context? Yeah, I'm very aware of the um, of the intent and uh, willingness and availability and openness that I think that we're both bringing to the to the space. Um, and so we have these. I mean, the whole thing is is uh, very fluid or dynamic. We have these moments that have. If I may say, a kind of a quality of transcendence, right? We're transcending the limitations of of the technology that we're using to speak and the uh, all of the other realities of distance and, and difference in experience, and having a conversation that has 
strong presence and encounter to it. So um, I feel, and I sense in you that you feel a warmth and a readiness to really see one another and hear one another, which I would locate in the category of power. And it, it gl- we get glimpses of that. And it's also our official, um, if you will, like our stated purpose, right? And so mission statements, vision statements, that stuff matters. Like we, we came to this moment with a readiness and a willingness and a kind of fundamental contract for encounter, by the way, encounter is a sociotomy word, which we can talk about. Um, and that, that goes a long way towards both of our willingness to rise to that occasion. And then as we talk, you know, I go off and I talk about the things in an abstracted way and, um, and you're listening and trying to do your role and we have some, some role restriction. Um, I'm working to be as coherent as I can and as present as I can. And you're working to be as present as you can and you're listening. Um, so, there are moments also where our socialization is totally there. I'm active in my probably degrees of overfunctioning and and fear uh, about being seen and heard and and welcomed. And you've got fear about doing it wrong. And so whenever those fears arise and they're differential, they're not the same fear. But what we're worried about is that it won't happen. That we won't meet. Um, that the that the systemic socialization will win. Um, there are benefits to having this technology because some of the components of an encounter are absent, right? So there's things we don't have to deal with, thank yeah. goodness, and we have that that chance to to meet in this way. So I think status wise, for example, we're giving each other. Uh, lots of chances to be up and down with each other. We're we're seesawing well. Uh, you're not insisting on you know something, and I'm not telling you um, that you're bad and wrong. Um, and so I think we're being respectful, but we're not being I don't think too cautious either. So I think we're hanging out in a nice sort of sweet spot of of seesawing on status. Um, at the rank level, we are not naming too much, right? We're not going there too far. Um, Using age as an example is a relatively safe thing for us to do because we have shared agency there. So it's a lovely way to, it's a good place for us to do examples. We've both done that. Um, And it's telling, right, that we would choose to do that because it's giving us a chance to connect on an agent to agent way. If that shifts and we're speaking more in an agent to target way, it will have a different quality. You're also talking to me as an expert in my field, which is social class. And so we are having shared voice in social class. Anybody who listens to this so far will hear primarily our our age and um, social class voices, which are agent voices all around. Hmm. That doesn't mean that the rest of me isn't present or the rest of you isn't present. But just notice that that's a functional action. That's a functional move for us to do that. I love that. And I'm even noticing throughout the interview that my body is loosening and I'm feeling more playful. Mm -hmm. And so I think for me, and I hope this translates for folks who, who are out there who really want to connect with their, with their agent role in a way that's serving that as we name things and as you and I kind of get more real about 
about ourselves, it helps me relax. It helps me loosen up. It helps me give the sense that there's more bandwidth. There's more bandwidth to experiment and to connect rather than to screw up. Yeah. So, so the, the impulse I just had a moment ago was <clears throat> great. So what else do you want to share? What else do you, would you love people to know about you either in rank or otherwise that could facilitate more learning here? Well, where I went when you were talking about bandwidth was just the excitement that I feel about the spaces that get created that are playful. Um, so in, in my teaching work where I'm, uh, you know, for many years now training counselors, um, the work there is a lot about delight and, and joy and, um, capacity to relax into the role and to, to really and truly delight in the possibility of conversations that had that have intentionality and where there's a contract and you have an hour not unlike what we're doing here uh, you have an hour to to be very uh, intentional about the conditions that might result in some miraculous thing hmm. right across significant difference, you know, whatever those dimensions, all the dimensions of Frank that may be in place. And so just to give you kind of an image of that, in um, in some of my classes, what we do is we watch a film or, or a clip of a film uh, where there's a bunch of Frank stuff going awry. And, and then we imagine that those people, that family, that couple, that person come into the counseling room and we role play a lot. Um, and we stop the action and analyze all of this stuff in this very cold way, like what's happening on the status, rank, and power level. Um, we do these, you know, charting kind of things. Mm. And then choices about how, what to try. Like, okay, what about, um, so the, the categories, um, age, disability, religion, ethnicity, et cetera, the categories of the addressing model, we call them channels. And the idea is that you have this remote in your hand as a, as a counselor teacher, facilitator, anything. And then you you, choose, you can choose a channel. You don't have to just like go with whatever's happening. You can choose a channel in which there's more resource. So for example, as you make a social analysis, uh, as kind of we were just doing together, we look at the social analysis uh, of this interaction and we look at uh, where are the resources, either because there's supremacy there or because there's work has been done on either on the agent side or the target side or both so that there's a broader skill available maybe can't ever count on it that can be assessed actually very quickly once you know how to look for it hmm. then we can choose a channel let's say that a family is very uh you know they're very at odds they're high conflict in this moment and they're arguing about x thing which is going to be located in one or more channels if you choose a channel that's not affected by that particular problem their bodies will soften and they will suddenly be able to remember who they are to one another and be able to interconnect. And we can build those resources to be able to come back to the problematic area in a more resourced way. So it's just an example of this idea of bandwidth. And if the experience itself, the experience of teaching and counseling, uh, of, of interacting, of facilitation and being facilitated, if the experience itself is liberatory, it, if it has these, it can be small, but degrees of of freedom of movement and relaxation where the bands around our bodies are softening, where we're in some um, rhythmic delight with one another, of course, biochemically and neurologically, we're accessing resources that will permit miracles. Now, to, the definition of miracles in this context for me is access to power when all 
indicators are saying that we shouldn't be able to access it. Uh, you know, often what natural disasters, horrible experiences will result in things that shouldn't be possible between people, but then they happen. Um, we can be very surprised when there's repair. We can be very amazed when someone actually hears us. And, and then officially, they don't really have the capacity to hear us, but then they do. In this moment of high polarization, it's going to take these miracles to build relationships across significant worldview that, uh, that are not all about restricted states of guilt, fear, and shame, but rather about um, the pure ecstatic dance of interconnection, especially across difference. It reminds me of acrobatics. Um, there are things we can do. We can fly, right? We can, there are things we can do as human beings if conditions line up. And what I'm interested in is us becoming increasingly informed about how to create those conditions. I love not that. In, yeah. Not describing them and teaching about them, but actually creating them. Yeah. Yeah. That's where, that's exactly where I was going. <laughs> Yeah. I wonder if you have any ideas for people listening who want to play with this on a daily level. What's what's an accessible condition to start playing with? Well, um, some of these are kind of paradoxes, but one we already named, which is anytime that you're thinking about uh, oppression as a problem, make the mental gymnastics to get to that other place where, wait, it's not a problem to solve. It's a mystery to encounter. It's a set of socio-historical complexities that uh, affect a large percentage of whatever's going on. Many messages are being sent and received that I'm not even aware of. And that creates humility and a quality of observation that relaxes because it's true. So we relax up against truth. So whenever, whenever we let ourselves in on how something really is, something relaxes, even if the situation is really awful. Mm. So that's fine. Um, that relaxation um, brings, liberates resources, liberates freer states, and it may give us surprising ideas of what to do or, or say or not say and not do. So that's a thing, right? Just slowing down enough to listen. It's so simple. But the quality of listening with humility or it's like, what's really happening for this other person? Which, of course, for counselors, right? It's our bread and butter. What's really happening here? To get truly and deeply curious. By the way, you can't be curious and anxious at the same time. So it's powerful medicine against all the fear states. I'm going to be misrepresented. I'm going to be misunderstood. I'm going to be harmed. Whenever we can get curious, we'll get safer if, in fact, there is physical danger. And we'll get calmer if there's no physical danger. And the thing we're calling danger is just discomfort. So that's another component. Another another bit is let's see if we can stop calling unsafe or dangerous that which is uncomfortable. Hmm. Can we say feel uncomfortable instead of I feel unsafe? Are you saying that that can be utilized as a sort of an obstacle to creating conditions when, yeah, I can see it on social media times when people sort of like back up from the, from the statement of, I don't feel safe. They're really talking about, I don't want to be uncomfortable. Yeah. And I don't feel safe if it's coming from the voice of a member of a dominant group usually means I am now exercising supremacy uh, over this experience to shut it down. When the statement comes from a member of a marginalized group, it usually means I'm not sure if I'm going to make it home. 
a lot. And so that that's a really useful reframe is to hear ourselves get ready to say, I don't feel safe and to notice, whoa, supremacy is starting to shut this down. Just noticing that is a lovely thing. And then another comp- another one for members of agent group, which is what you asked, um, is any time that we're really focused on someone else from our group and we're going, wow, how can I make that person less oppressive? Or, and, you know, how can I, how can I uh, intervene um, in that person's stance, demeanor, worldview, um, that's a real distraction. So it's very useful to play with, again, it's just a device. How is that in me? How is that in me? What am I, I'm noticing something. It's a mirror every single time. It's a mirror. And so the work is going to look different. There may still, there may still be an intervention that wants to be carried out, but if it comes from, okay, that's a mirror rather than I'm right, you're wrong. Um, that softening again is going to liberate resources, is going to create an invitation for a much more regulated state, and our mirror neurons are going to do most of the work. And that's power. Power is about source or resource. It's about authenticity. It's about playfulness and delight. It's about creating, being able to imagine uh, um, and create with, with our imaginal selves, which is embodied, new realities that our uh, socialization and conditioning and even, even worldview can't account for. So we have, uh, we have something we create in a visioning way, and then we experience it. And it's only after that that it becomes a part of our vernacular or part of our worldview or our sense of the world. Um, but we keep trying to do it the other way. We try to create frames of the world and then make the world try and fit in there. Um, so the invitation with spontaneity, with psychodrama, with playback theater, um, with authentic movement, with theater of the oppressed, with all of these embodied techniques, um, the invitation is to discover that actually it's much easier. We don't have to create new frames. We don't have to sell anyone on a new worldview. We, what we have to do is create conditions where the very natural emergence of who people really are can come up and and be um, emerge without being filtered away by the time it reaches the surface. So it's about permissiveness, and I'm, most everywhere I go, most people don't like that. But the more permissive an environment, as long as there's a lot of praxis, a lot of reflection, the more transformation there will be. Right. The more restrictive an environment, the less transformation there will be. I love that. I love that imagery too of the f- before it sort of dissolves, before it filters to the top, which seems like there's a lot of that happening socially. There's so much charge and activation um, in our fields that we're hardly connecting with any sort of level of resource in, in these moments, right? And this, the socionomic view or, or proposal um, is that, it has three parts, is that if we can see how people are connected, if we can unpack and become skillful at noticing attractions, repulsions, neutralities, and ambivalences between people, and we can make what is not seen more visible, then the second part is role expansion will occur. Wider and wider ways of relating will become available through spontaneity and role training. And then there are specific mechanisms for achieving that um, in this tradition of socionomy. Um, if the role expansion 
can happen through that sociotomy, that the, this, this tradition has two particular ways to do that. And these two ways can be more or less formal. One of them is psychodrama and the other one is sociodrama. And basically it's these very specific methodologies for embodying and enacting in order to develop this new relationship that is um, not very verbal and cognitive and linear, but rather embodied and action oriented. Mm -hmm. So the mm -hmm. overall way that I mean, my kind of my final thing that I want to say is that action methodology um, that is informed by anti-oppression theory and carried out by people who know how to bring about conditions, sort of like the, con sort of like the, the requirements for ritual, you know, you have to have a knowledgeable, elder, you have to have certain elements in place, um, you have to have the possibility of extraordinary moment or time or space, things can happen there. And that is um, usually we associated with, you know, really extraordinary states, people have to travel to Peru and climb a mountain. But the fact is, we can do it in our daily interactions, as long as we are equipped with the right skills. Beautiful, beautiful sign of hope. I, I wonder if you have a minute, I do want to ask you, I'm fascinated and also excited about this concept of, of centering from a, from a target perspective. And, you know, your book, you talk about how conventionally empowerment is this, is this really, it's almost a buzzword in our, in our personal development world. Um, but you're talking about recentering being the highest skill level for a target identified person to achieve right so the the title of my book and my trainings is beyond inclusion beyond empowerment to signal that our collective consciousness has uh has a vision for a world that is inclusive and empowered and i'm offering the idea that there's at least two breaths beyond that um, for members of the marginalized group that empowerment is a doorway to uh, to come to come home to center that um, all the all the skills prior and including the beginning of empowerment are really reactive to supremacy and to the conditions of supremacy after empowerment the next skill that can emerge and by the way these are not stages but um, skill sets back to the fountain image yep. um, the the next skill is I've named it strategy and it has to do with the ability to slow down and regulate both individually and in, in diets and groups in order to make very clear choices as to how to respond or participate. And after practicing that quite a bit, then those more strategic and less reactive ways will become available. And the name for that is recentering, it will become available naturally. It's like a it's like an entrainment where instead of reacting to supremacy with anger and rage, which is an absolutely legitimate way to respond or react to supremacy, that the response is a, not a response, but a, um, a relegation of supremacy to the margin of consciousness and life. And in a space where the... Um, the valuing of self as member of that group and others who are members of that group and by extension others who are members of other target groups 
are placed in the center. And I, I actually, this has been working on me for a long time, but um, in the 90s, I read a book by Okuhiro called The Margins, Margins in the Mainstreams, I think, or, no, or something like that. Margins and Mainstreams, it was called. And it talked about how uh, all the stated values of you know, the vision that was to be the United States of America could be found historically much more in evidence on the margins of society rather than the mainstream. And there's something about that that really informs my sense of what it means to recenter, that our highest values um, I, that we can identify as collective in collectives that are mixed, you'll find them being lived out much more among people who've been able to recenter. And that's why... Why Angelou is our poet laureate, right? Or mm. why it's Mantutu, all we have to do is say his name and our eyes start smiling. Because people who have access to that recentering consciousness, all they have to do really is be. So in the target skills model, we go from over-functioning to functioning to being. Mm. On the agent skills model, we go from being deep asleep to coming partially awake, to coming full awake, and enact enacting what we are able to see, and so they're very different metaphors, right? That the part our different parts, the development of our of our agent assigned and our target assigned parts have very different work to do, and it's paced differently and requires very different things. Why, that's why it's so difficult to do this work when it's a kind of cookie cutter, you know, one size fits all, we just all need to get along thing. That really leaves us um, at a place where transformation is not very likely. So if we want to bring about the real deal, if we want to bring about change, it's going to be about relational, embodied, joyful, ecstatic, continuous, patient, humble work. Thank you. Said so beautifully. Yeah, I could continue talking about this for a long time. Um, we're running short on time for today. I want to ask just because it's a theme throughout this season, is there a, a leader in the current world? So we'll, we'll, we'll restrict you to people that are alive just for the context who you really admire in their consciousness of applying social awareness in the way that you're seeing it. Yeah, I mean, I just, a, a very immediate layer of people comes up. Um, I've benefited a great deal from conversations with Resma Menachem, who wrote My Grandmother's Hands. He looks at racialized trauma and uh, has a, a profound um, instinct and understanding and skillfulness with um, historical trauma for um, people of African-American membership, as well as um, exploring how white body supremacy affects um, people of color as well as white people. And then he's also got this additional analysis on law enforcement and military that is just breathtaking. Mm. So I highly recommend uh, him and his book. Um, Robin D'Angelo is, uh, of course, uh, gave us white fragility and uh, has a, a very sensitive touch with the question of what it means to create these conditions and it's just fantastic um her presence very much illuminates some of what i was describing about someone who's not just awake but really comfortable with seeing what there is to see and able to remain regulated while um engaging with conviction and in action 
Um, and then um, I think Ijeoma Oluo, um, who uh, wrote um, several books I really love, So You Want to Talk About Race, um, her her flavor, and everybody has their own flavor, her flavor of recentering um, is just elegant. I mean, there's something so um, disarming and nourishing about how she approaches the questions. So um, I love her and her book. Thank you. Yeah, hopefully Good people... Not, but I'll just leave it there. Thank you. Is there anything we didn't get to that you want to make sure you mention? Um, I guess I want to say that um, that when it comes to preparing people who work with people, such as uh, working in this counseling program at St. Martin's, um, every environment is a microcosm of the wider society. And so any, any um, space that trains or facilitates others to work with others, teachers, counselors, etc., cetera, uh, really needs to, really must take seriously the commitment to, um, to liberate the students who will then become facilitators or counselors for others. And so as long as it's treated as a topic, I believe we're having that same problem of um, treating it as a problem or a topic rather than really doing the um, the work of transformation, which is considerably harder. You know, you can talk about a topic, but but the practices, embodied practices are an important um, maybe requirement to the possibility yeah. of someone really being formed and informed and reformed and freed up to to bring their gift so um, i'm very interested in that that idea and that message and i highly recommend anybody listening who, who's intrigued by what dr nieto is sharing check out the book beyond empowerment beyond inclusion um a developmental model to liberate everyone hope i got that title right beyond inclusion beyond, beyond inclusion all right sorry beyond inclusion mm -hmm. beyond empowerment uh it it lays out all of these concepts and more, including um, resources, skills, tasks, ideas, and concepts in a really powerful way. It's been it's been life changing for me as I continue to engage with it. So, uh, really appreciate you coming on and and playing with me today, and so thankful for the work, the powerful work you're doing in the world. You know, I realized um, I forgot to mention Pasajeros Playback for anyone who might be listening that is uh, anywhere near Olympia, Tacoma, and Seattle. It's a playback theater group um, informed by social justice work, and we're always recruiting new new members for our um, for our team who are interested in exploring these questions through um, improvisational theater. Cool. We'll make sure we have your yeah. stuff in the in the links in the production notes too, so these resources will be easy to find. Great. Great. Thanks for being here. Absolutely. I appreciate the conversation and I hope we stay in touch. Find out more about Dr. Leticia Nieto's work at beyondinclusionbeyondempowerment.com and or at quetzpalin.com. I'm going to spell that one for you. It's C-U-E-T-Z-P-A-L-I-N.com. I'll leave you with the Supergiver's leadership question of the day. Which part of this interview spoke to you personally? And if that little moment in time were a message for you, what would it hold? 
This has been the Super Givers Podcast, and I'm your host and producer, Jesse Johnson. If you like what you're hearing and would like to support the show, you can do so with one of three simple actions. You can write a five-star review on iTunes, you can tell a friend about the show, or you can subscribe and listen to another episode on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, or TuneIn. You can learn more about me and my equine-based leadership work at supergivers.com. Thanks for listening. Thank you.